Hello, listeners, and welcome back to How to Survive the End of the World, our podcast about learning from apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity. I'm your co-host, Autumn Brown. Back in the day during our first full season of How to Survive the End of the World, Adrian and I recorded a conversation about class, wealth, and debt. I don't know what to do. I don't, I, I'm an anti-capitalist. But where do I actually get into? But I'm on this hamster wheel. I'm on the hamster wheel. And how do mm-hmm. I, you know, I, you know, so one other example. We framed this conversation as part one of a series on future economics. And we knew that we wanted our next segment of the series to be focused on the solidarity economy. Fast forward to fall 2019. A few weeks ago, I had the pleasure of being interviewed on the Next Economy Now podcast. Next Economy Now highlights the leaders who are taking a regenerative, bioregional, equitable, transparent, and whole systems approach to using business as a force for good. I was interviewed by the podcast's host, Ryan Honeyman, and our conversation focused on worker co-ops as a critical part of the solidarity economy infrastructure and why Americans struggle so much with the idea of cooperation. We are excited to cross-post this conversation and bring it to you as Future Economics Part 2, The Solidarity Economy. Autumn, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ryan. So good to be here. Cool. Um, Autumn, let's start with a bit about your background for folks who might not know who you are and what you do. Um, Mm -hmm. How did you first get interested in the type of work you're doing today? Oh, that's a good question. Um, Well, I've been, you know, the work that Aorta does um, is we are facilitators and political educators. We do that work in a variety of different spaces. We have a a focus on working within social justice movements with, we do a lot of consulting and training with movement building organizations. And then we also work inside the solidarity economy. We work with a lot of cooperatives and we facilitate on a range of topics, but you know, our focus obviously is helping people have a systemic analysis of how oppression works so that they can uproot those systems as they arise in their own work in order to make their social justice work more effective. So I joined Aorta in 2016, but I've been doing facilitation and political education around race and white supremacy for, you know, since I was in my early 20s, so quite a long time now. And I would say that in some ways with facilitation, I kind of, I think I fell into it in the way that a lot of people who are organizers fall into facilitation. So I was already doing, I was doing student organizing work. And then when I moved to New York City after college, I was doing anarchist organizing work. I was a part of the New York Metro Alliance of Anarchists and started an anarchist health and healing justice collective with a group of other organizers when I was living in in Brooklyn. Facilitation was just a skill that was needed, and I happened to have a natural facility with it, right? And I think that's what often, that's how people often fall into facilitation is because someone needs to hold space for the work that's happening, and it ends up being the people who have the most natural skill to do that thing. And then after a couple of years, it became clear to me that there was, you know, I, I, well, one, I think to be totally honest, it became clear to me that I was skilled enough that I could get paid to do it. Um, <laughs> and I would prefer to be getting paid to facilitate than to be getting paid for what I was doing for my day job. 
And then I think over time, it really evolved for me as, you know, so I started a, a facilitation and consulting practice when, you know, in, in like 2007. So it was a little, quite a while ago. And then over time, that really evolved for me in, in terms of I started to really understand from a, a broader political standpoint how critical the role of facilitation was for movement building because with someone holding the responsibility of whether you think of it as holding space or holding people accountable to their best intentions and their highest good or just holding people accountable to the agreements, their externally stated agreements for how they want to treat one another, that work creates pathways for the actual organizing work to be much more effective, right? Having someone holding that labor who's not themselves also trying to do the organizing work itself. Of course, I was also doing a lot of um, political education and training around racism and white supremacy. And that's, I always joke with my clients that I specialize in whiteness. And that <laughs> is my sort of area of specialty in, in my own work that I, I focus a lot on the history of whiteness, the evolution of whiteness as a social and economic status, the way that white supremacy functions as a system, um, how it functions in in cooperation with capitalism, how critical the, those two systems are to one another's functionality. So I was developing a methodology around that work over the course of about a decade and then was recruited by Aorta to join them. And it just was like a perfect fit for me because I had been kind of on a path of like, I had been working inside of a couple of different nonprofit organizations. I was kind of on the executive director path I, well, I had become an executive director at that point, and I had been the ED of two different nonprofits. And I think that was like a path I could have stayed on. But I knew for myself that I actually, I, I personally wanted to be in a different economic practice. And I wanted to be inside of a democratic formation that was also a political home. And that's what I found with Aorta. So it's been like a very dreamy, amazing experience to actually be a part of a worker co-op. It's, it's really hard work, <laughs> which we can get into, um, but it's, it's, uh, it's like the best workplace I've ever been in. Yeah. And I think, you know, one thing that may help frame up this conversation too is what do you see as like this sort of future, and this may be a tough question off the top of your head, but like, what is the sort of like future end what is this future of solidarity, the future of economics leading us towards? Like, how will we know we've gotten there? Like, what are some indicators mm. um, that you mm. sort of feel like, ah, like if we reach X, yeah, will sort of be meaningful? Well, I think, you know, one way to, one, one way into that question, I think, is to look at what is the status quo? You know, like what, what is, what is it that we're all living inside of that we're desperately trying to figure out a way to transform, you know? And I think of a, a lot of it having to do with a lack of agency, you know, that, that we collectively experience in our daily lives, like a real lack of agency to impact the conditions around us, to impact our immediate conditions. And there's a lot of stratification in that as well in terms of who in our society has the agency to make different choices economically, right? I remember that this became very clear to me like once I became a mom that because so much of the what you know when you're on the path to becoming a parent 
there's a lot of information that's directed at you about the choices that you're going to be making, right? A lot of that is, you know, commercialization. A lot of it is the commodification of like the work of parenting. And it's very, it was very interesting for me as I was on my path to becoming a parent to be confronted with all of this information about what appeared to be like an endless array of choices that I had about how I was going to parent and whether I was going to use this kind of diaper or that kind of diaper and whether I was going to co-sleep or crib sleep and whether I was going to do Montessori or, you know, regular preschool, like all these things, right? And then the further I got in my parenting journey, the more it became clear to me that like, it's not actually an endless array of choices. There's a part of how capitalism functions in our lives is by giving us the illusion of choice when actually the choices or what we have access to, what we can choose is like very, very limited by the the actual conditions of our lives. It's just the illusion of choice that makes us think that we're free, right? But we're not. <laughs> we live in a police state. Like, we're not free. And so, <laughs> um, and so that, was, that was really interesting for me to kind of like go through my own mental process of starting to really under, I started to really see and understand what was happening as a parent very differently and started to really understand how little choice I had around around some pretty basic things about how I was going to parent my kids or how limited my choices were. So I think like if I think of that as the status quo, then to me, like what a future economic vision is, has to be rooted in the idea that people actually do have agency over the conditions of their lives. And they do have the ability to make choices related, like that are rooted in their own values about what they're going to consume, what they're going to produce, how anything that they consume or produce is going to be utilized and how it's going to be disposed of. You know, if you think about like daylighting, what the system actually, what the economic system actually is from like the extraction of resources to the production of products, to the consumption of products, to the disposal of products. It's like, I want everyone I want all of us to live in a world where we can make choices rooted in our values about how we engage with that process, whether it's like me as a parent or me as a worker or me as someone who just like wants to go on vacation sometimes. Like I want, <laughs> I want choice. I want choices that are rooted in my, I want the ability to make choices that are rooted in my values. And so for me, you know, like the primary place where I'm, where I'm getting to have that experience right now in my life is being a part of a workplace that's a democratic formation. And the reason why I said earlier that it's like really hard work actually is because when you're in a democratic formation, you know, Aorta is a worker co-op, there's, there's 13 of us who are a part of the company and all, all but one of us are owners. And the one person who's not an owner yet is a candidate to become an owner. So she's like in her candidacy year. And when you're in a formation like that, there's no boss. So there's no, one, there's no one to point to as like the person where the buck stops there or the person at the end of the day that you can kind of blame for everything that's going wrong, <laughs> you know? And so any problem that we have in our workplace is a problem that it's our collective responsibility to solve. And there's no one else that, I mean, there are external conditions that impact what we can and can't do, obviously. But 
there's no one else who's responsible for generating solutions to the problem but us. And so it really forces us to pretty regularly be in confrontation with what our values are as we're making decisions about things as, you know, things that appear to be as simple as like, you know, when and where do we provide childcare, but actually are like, you know, there are political ramifications to decisions like that, you know, and then there's body ramifications, like there's physical, spiritual, emotional ramifications to like how those decisions are made and who's included and not included in those decisions, right? So it's like the best workplace I've ever been in, but I, it's also like the hardest workplace I've ever been in because we are who we have <laughs> to both to blame if we're having a problem, but also to, you know, to look to for the solution. And one of the things we talked about before the recording was, I think there's 300 or 350 worker-owned co-ops in the whole United States, even mm. though there's many more. And we were briefly getting into why we think that is. And do you have any theories about, you know, why there aren't more worker co-ops? It, it probably isn't. I mean, it's maybe that people just don't know they exist, but there's probably also like some sort of the sort of individualist American maybe mentality is like, I don't want to be part of a worker. Well, you know, I think, yeah, I think I'm so glad you asked this question because I think this is such an interesting aspect of American life, right? Because it is true. Like if you go to almost any other country in the world, you would find as a point of analysis that co-ops themselves, whether worker co-ops or food co-ops or banking co-ops, make up such a higher percentage of the economy than in the US. But to me, it's like, it is absolutely not an accident that that's the case. Because when you look at the history of how white supremacy and capitalism evolved on you know, this ground that we call the United States, Part of that evolution involved a very intentional destruction of the commons or how we, well, anything that we would understand to be like commonly held. I think about like, you know, the, the Homestead Act of 1862, right? So right in the middle of the Civil War, you have the federal government pass this Homestead Act where they've gone out, they've like murdered all these indigenous people or moved them to other places, taken tons and tons of land that was commonly held by indigenous folks. And they're looking for an efficient way to get that land settled, right? And it's, they're realizing it's becoming less and less efficient for like, you know, prospectors to be responsible for that process. So they pass this act that's like, all right, humans who are, you know, colonizing the East Coast, if you are a citizen of this country or you can become a citizen, right, which is a particular group of people, (laughs) you know, because like obviously the death, like who is a citizen and who is white is very much tied together. But if you're a citizen or you're going, or if you can become a citizen, you can pay $10 to get a piece of land. And if you can live on it for five years continuously, then it will be yours, your family's land, right? That's how min- I'm, I live in Minnesota right now. That's how Minnesota was settled, right? That's how most of the Midwest was settled and much of the, the broader West as well. And, you know, that process of like transforming a space that was commonly held into a space that is individually held was very, very intentional and had as much to do with like efficiency as it had to do with 
like the intentional like disappearance of a different way of thinking and a different way of being in relationship to land and to each other, right? So when you look around at, you know, the way we function together culturally in the U.S. today, there's almost no commonly held spaces. There's almost no truly public spaces in the U.S. And even if you like look at the way we celebrate national holidays, like in many places around the world, if there's a national holiday, people are celebrating that holiday out together in public. But, you know, like what's like our biggest, you know, one of the biggest national holidays, Thanksgiving, is celebrated. I mean, Thanksgiving is problematic as fuck, right? Excuse my language. But, but also, it's, it's not an accident that that holiday is celebrated in the privacy of our own homes. There's not like a national or there's not like an out in the world collective way that we're celebrating that holiday, right? And so to me, it just points to, you know, there's, there's a way that Americans really identify with this ideology of like individualism that to me, like it points back to the ideology of white supremacy and capitalism, right? That it's all, it's not just about it's not just this personal problem that we're more interested in ourselves and less interested in each other. And we just need to be more interested in each other. It's like the, our entire economic structure that we exist inside of always points us back to ourselves and always points us back to like a sense that, that we must be self-reliant in order to be successful in this system because that's the way the system is set up, you know? that relying, that uh, sense of collective reliance is a losing game, right? And so to me, it's like, there's that ideological underpinning. And then there's the reality that, you know, the legal, you know, the legal codes that govern how you can construct businesses, as you well know, make it very complicated. They make it very, very complicated <laughs> to try to run any kind of business that's not, um, you know, individual proprietorship. Um, <laughs> and even for that, I think it's also still, like, it's just complicated. It's hard to stay legal in the U.S., you know. And I think that there's some really great work that's happening around that right now, around trying to, you know, create more rewards in the system for people to choose cooperation over private ownership. But I think, you know, just thinking from my own perspective as like, as a, a worker owner of a business, it brings up all your stuff, you know, like if you're, and by stuff, I mean like, you know, all of your, <laughs> like all the things you as an individual person like need to work out related to money, related to class, related to income and status and, and scarcity. You know, like when you're, when you, when you're throwing in with other people and saying like our economic future is now tied to one another, um, it, it really pushes you to be in confrontation with like whatever your unresolved issues are with like class, money, scarcity, all those things. Yeah. I feel like we're continually going through that at our worker co-op. Just there's six of us. So I can't imagine 13. That must be... <laughs> Yeah, changes decision making has to change once you get to a certain level. <laughs> well, maybe that's something we could tap into a little bit. So, you know, decision making in a democratic collective is you, know, you want to have everyone have all the information and be able to make the same decisions. And yet, we're at, you know, um, there's different sort of 
abilities to show up and, you know, based on white supremacy, et cetera, you know, like in our collective, often the white partners were not necessarily dealing with, you know, historical trauma or we weren't pulled over by the police yesterday or like mm-hmm. we're not dealing with debt and that um, some of our black partners have to deal with that on a daily basis. And so just even showing up to the meetings and being present is, is like different and for the white partners to know that that's like a part of institutional racism and like part of the system of white supremacy has been really important because how can we do this together if we're just sort of operating like, hey, like we all should just show up and like be here and like there's no like there's if no you like would backstory. Just show up. <laughs> right. Yeah. So how do you think about like how does Aorta think like work on like inclusive decision making and like making sure everyone's voices are included and like that. Mm part of the process. Yeah, well, I would say, you know, how how we do that and how we have done that. It's 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 a process that's continuing to evolve because we have grown really significantly especially in the last year and a half. We did a national hiring process where we brought on five new people all at the same time who were on a candidacy track all at the same time and just became owners back in June. And so we've had to really evolve our decision-making model in response to the growth in the number of people who are owners in the business. Because it truly, when you are, when you're operating at, when you're trying to do democratic process, but you're operating with like more than six to eight people, where decisions live, really starts to matter, right? And that's that's one of the ways that we've been thinking about it is like, okay, the question, what if we're not framing it as like, does everyone need to make this decision? But we're rather framing it as where does this decision live? And like, where can we actually give different parts of different component functions of our business? Where can we give people authority to make decisions on behalf of the business as a whole? trusting that the, those, that subgroup of folks is going to be able to make a decision in alignment with our shared values, right? Because, you know, like most businesses, we have our internal, you know, we have our external facing work, the work that we do with clients, the public trainings that we do, the webinars that we do, all those things. But then we have our internal facing work, right? Like our governance work and our finance and operations work and our HR stuff and our strategic planning stuff. And like, those are things that happen where that are organized internally into hubs of work that different people are responsible for. And we make sure that we rotate people through those different internal hubs of work so people aren't having to hold the same work over years of time. But ideally, people are in those hubs long enough to really gain those skills and to be able to make decisions responsibly inside of those spaces. So that's part of how we've been orienting to it of like, can this decision live within a smaller hub of folks instead of having to be made by the group as a whole and then differentiating like what are the decisions that need to be made by all of the owners like what are the decisions that have legal or fiduciary implications for the business and therefore have to be made by everyone together rather than decisions that are like maybe it's an expenditure that's like slightly higher than something that we budgeted but it's still in the range of normal and it's like it doesn't necessarily require everyone's eyes on it or something like that, you know? We've had some people in our, inside Aorta who've done really beautiful work on like developing a more granular decision-making model for us that really defines some of those things so that we have guidance. But of course, no decision-making model will cover all of the possible scenarios you might be confronted with, right? 
And so, so inevitably, you know, we find ourselves confronted with scenarios that we couldn't have anticipated, you know, in those moments, it really is about like skillful facilitation ultimately. And we're lucky, you know, we're a group of facilitators, but it's actually hard. It's actually hard for facilitators to facilitate themselves in a way we're kind of like the worst people to facilitate because <laughs> everyone sees what everyone's doing. You know, it's just like, Oh, I see what I see. You're, I see what you're doing to us. I'm kidding. Actually, everyone's very patient with each other, but we, we have to bring that skill to ourselves, right. In those moments, because there's a, there's a process of collective discernment around where the decision is going to live that everyone kind of needs to touch before, before we can even like point in a, a particular direction together. And I think one of the things that a facilitator can do that we can't always do for ourselves is a facilitator can help a group determine like, where is the investment in this decision, you know? And I think about this all the time for myself, like how invested am I in the outcome of this particular decision-making process? Because that, that is a thing that really trips people up in democratic process period, right? Is like oftentimes groups, collectives, or groups that are considering becoming collectives and are considering implementing some kind of democratic decision-making process, they get really tripped up around the idea that everyone has to weigh in on every decision, you know? But one of the things that, that we've really been working on in our workplace and that I always encourage folks to work on when I'm working with groups that are trying to implement a democratic process is like, it's actually really okay if not everyone is invested at the same level in every decision. It's actually great <laughs> if, if, if people can be in a practice of letting go when it comes to when a decision is being made that they don't actually have a high level of emotional investment or even intellectual investment in the outcome, right? Especially if you're rooted in a set of shared values, which that is necessary to democratic process, right? Like you actually can't have a functional democratic process in a group if there's not principles of unity or agreements or something that says like, this is how we collectively understand how we're making decisions together, regardless of what our process is. And so for me, it's been very liberating to say, We've got principles of unity. We've got a shared political framework. We have a theory of change that we all agree to. And so if I don't feel very invested in the outcome of a particular decision, I'm just gonna sit back on this one. Maybe I'll play a facilitative role or maybe I'll just stand aside or maybe I'll just be like, I'm just here to support in whatever way possible, but I don't feel the need to like put myself right in the middle of that process and fight for a particular outcome. And if I can do that, then it makes space for those who are really invested in the outcome to make the best possible proposal that they can, right? The synthesis of the best possible ideas in the room. And I think that there's, you know, it's kind of a dance that you have to do in democratic process between like, to what extent are people like cooperating towards the best possible idea versus to what extent people get to like, really make an argument for why their idea is the best, you know? And I think whenever I'm teaching people how to practice democratic decision-making together or to practice consensus, I really emphasize the process of synthesization, right? That like what we actually want to do is create an, you know, we want to pull all the information that we have together and create an idea, a proposal, pass a decision that's like more comprehensive than what any one person could come up with, right? 
those are the ideal circumstances when you're practicing consensus decision-making with others. On the other hand, I actually do believe that it's important for people to be able to be persuasive and to make arguments and to fight for what they really believe in. I don't think that it's, I don't think that it's counter to democratic process for people to say like, this is important to me and I want to try to convince you all as to why, you know, <laughs> um, because oftentimes it's those voices in a space that can expose something that the rest of the group can't see, you know. So I feel like, you know, I feel like it is like a delicate dance. I witness us doing it in aorta all the time, this like dance between how are we cooperating with one another versus like how are we fighting for what we believe in internally. Sometimes we fall down, you know. <laughs> but oftentimes, you know, like we we just had an experience just yesterday or the day before where we where we were able to pass a very complicated decision via email because we were using our process. And it was really cool. It was really, really cool to be like, whoa, we passed a very, very complicated decision exclusively via email because we used hard. our actual process. Like, whoa, we did it. <laughs> you know, so moments like that feel like, you know, that's the future, you know? Are you willing to share <laughs> that process, Doc? Because that's like... <laughs> That is like the golden, like the golden ticket, I feel like. But, right, it's like. <laughs> but it's also, I think what I would like to sort of reemphasize something you said to some of our listeners and others is like the, the values, vision, theory of change stuff has to be done first, really. Yeah. Because it's like, if you're just making decisions, but there's no shared, or, or at least there's an assumption of shared values, it can go haywire. That's the worst. That's the worst outcome, right? Is if there's an assumption of shared values that aren't actually there, you know, and it's not like you can't make decisions with people who don't operate from the same assumptions as you, but it's always better if whatever those assumptions are really transparent, you know, and like in our co-op, we do have people who like land in really different places in terms of how they orient to what we are all collectively responsible for versus what we are individually responsible for, you know, what level of authority any one person in the co-op should have versus what level of authority the group as a whole should have. Like we have, we have like a wide range of opinions about things like that. The difference is that we're having those conversations and it's actually, it's been very cool for me to be in a workplace where like, because of some of that, groundwork that's been laid, we're able to have much more complex conversations about authority and responsibility than what I've experienced in, in other workplaces. We're able to have like much more complex conversations about how power is held in a democratic space because power is still at play. People still have power. People still have the, there are people who have more power to influence others in the group than other people have right? Because it's a fucking human formation <laughs> with humans in it. <laughs> and, and so we're, with support, we're having a lot of those kinds of conversations right now about like, how is power actually held in our organization when in theory, like on paper, none of us can make anyone do anything. And yet there's still that dance happening. It's really amazing to like get to a point in the process where we can talk about things like that. It's deeply uncomfortable, right? Like it's pushing all of the growth edges. But to me, it does feel like we have to be experimenting at that level if 
we want to evolve a different model, right? Because I really see cooperatives and I see the solidarity economy as a part of our pathway out of capitalism. We have a lot of bridging that we have to do. If you think about it from the sort of like anarchist lens of dual power, right? This idea that like there's a system already at play in which resources are constantly moving in, an, in multiple directions, but their resources are being passed back and forth between certain players inside that system. And that's how it works. From a dual power standpoint, we have to be building another set of systems and institutions so that as the system that we're trying to dismantle crumbles, there's a place for all of those resources to go. You know, and I really think of the solidarity economy as that pathway for us, that that's a place for us to start channeling all of the resources that we're trying to move out of the capitalist economy into something different. We're not going to be able to like build that perfect system inside the shell of the old, right? Like we can't, it can't be everything we want it to be, but we can be practicing liberation in our process of creating it. I really do think of like liberation is actually like a state of being. It's not a destination that we're trying to reach. Like there are ways that we can be very liberated even in this moment, you know, even inside, even while living inside of a police state. And actually we have to, we have to be able to experience liberation as a state that we can like generate inside of ourselves if we're going to like imagine something other than what we're living in currently. And then we have to be able to experiment from that place. And so I, I do believe that like, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to be a part of a worker co-op and one of the reasons why in my client facing work, I really encourage people to consider like making the shift towards a co-op model is because I feel like that is the space that forces us to learn the skills that we need, the hard skills of like, <laughs> of relationship that we need to have in order to be in a different economic practice. Are there folks, either individuals or organizations that you could point listeners to of like, who's like leading in that solidarity economy or sort of, who do you look to for inspiration when you're thinking mm. about like what it, what's possible? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I do look to the United States Federation of Worker Co-ops, which is led by my aorta colleague, Esteban Kelly, who is also just one of the most brilliant people that I know. And the Federation does a lot of educational work as well as just like a lot of co-op development work. They also partner with an organization called the Democracy at Work Institute that has a lot of educational resources that I often point people towards DAWI, the Democracy at Work Institute, when they're thinking about either starting a co-op or trying to make a transition from being some other type of business to a co-op because, because there are so many like just down there in the weeds questions that can feel very, very intimidating for folks. So those are two of the resources that immediately come to mind. And then there's also, I mean, you were actually referencing Bali, I think, at the top of our conversation. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that program yeah. for listeners, because I think that that's another place where people are doing some really visionary work around yeah. the solidarity economy. Yeah, folks don't know Bali, Business Alliance for Local Living Economies. It's all about how do you create resilient, racially just, locally self-reliant economies that work for all and sort of taking the power back to regional and local businesses uh, and creating regional networks and local networks as opposed to 
larger corporations, but all done with like an equity, racial justice, dismantling white supremacy lens. And a, a lot of their work of late has been around like the finance piece. Like how do we drive more capital to black and brown communities? So it's, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, to build the next economy. So we only have a couple minutes left, uh, Autumn, but one th- question we'd like to ask is um, what do you need right now and how can our listeners help you grow the next economy? Oh, like what do I, like what does Aorta need? Or just what, or... It, like what would be supportive for you? Is there an ask um, or like uh, whatever comes to mind personally? Oh my gosh, I love this question. That's so cool. Well, I personally, I just went through a major personal life transition and I moved to a new place and I'm going through a divorce. I'm going through a process of having to do like a, a division of household, right? Like, especially thinking in terms of like, yeah, uh, economy from the movement generation lens is management of home. Like I'm having to go through a process of like managing the division of home with my longtime partner and my co-parent. I I have three kids. So yeah, so there's, if there are people who are based in Minnesota and who want to come find me on Facebook, I have like a like DIY divorce registry that I've created so that I can like set up home, set up my new home. And yeah, that's like where I'm at in terms of my, my personal need is I'm looking for community support in terms of setting up this next phase of my life and like making sure that the way that I'm living is like reflective of my values, regardless of where I am. Yeah. Divorce registries, something that it does not exist and should exist because that's, that's when idea. you actually need a registry. Right. <laughs> It's such a good idea. Someone should totally like make that as like a cooperative business. Thanks for listening to our show. We're on Twitter and Instagram at End of the World PC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. You can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash end of the world show. Another incredibly helpful thing you can do to help our show sustain itself is to write us a review on Apple Podcasts if you are an iPhone person. Thank you. How to Survive the End of the World is produced and edited by the incomparable Zach Rosen. Music for today's show comes from Tunde Alaniran and Mother Cyborg.